From the crossroads of America in the Hoosier state of Indiana, this is Get In, the podcast focused on the unfolding stories and extraordinary innovations happening right now in the heartland. I'm Matt Hunkler, CEO at Powder Keg, and I will be one of your hosts for today's conversation. I am joined in studio by co-host Nate Spangle, head of community at Powder Keg, and on the show today is Angie Stockland, a professor, angel investor, and former co-founder and COO at OneClick. At that point in time, we were getting over 50% of our traffic from organic search. We got up one day and mm. all 11 of our websites were gone from Google. Gone. Gone. Angie Stockland was the COO and co-founder at OneClick, a company located in Greenwood, Indiana that owned three different eyewear brands. After OneClick was acquired by Foster Grant in 2018, Angie became an angel investor, columnist for the Indianapolis Business Journal, and an entrepreneurship and innovation lecturer at Purdue University. In today's show, we are going to cover professional transitions, finding your niche in a career you love, and I'm sure we're gonna share more than a few startup stories that are sure to inspire Angie, welcome to Get In. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for being here. Yes. We've been so excited about this conversation and I'm eager to hear how everything is going with angel investing as well as teaching and writing. You have so much knowledge to share, but I figured we could at least share with our audience a little bit of the story. You were mentioning just before we hit go on the podcast that it's been almost 20 years since you started Almost 20 years. It was 2005. And do you remember it like it was yesterday or does that seem like a lifetime ago? There are parts that still haunt me. <laughs> oh, oh, those are the ones we want to talk yes. about on the show today. Let's <laughs> dig in. Take me all the way back to the early days before you were even incorporated. 2005, what was your life like? In 2005, I was working as a school psychologist. I had never thought about being an entrepreneur. I loved psychology. I actually really loved my job. Yeah. But I was married at the time to someone who was an entrepreneur in every bone of his body. <laughs> and so if you have met Randy, which I know both of you have, and if our podcast listeners have as well, he's just an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. And so we always knew that he was going to do something. We didn't quite know we were going to do it together, but it was just a really natural fit. Mm. So in our spare time, we would nerd out on like building websites and trying to figure out like hey, could we do something? Yeah. We don't know what it is. Let's do something. We were not the entrepreneurs that were solving a world problem or had a problem of our own that we were going to solve. It was a very different beginning. Mm. But I think that beginning of this tinkering together allowed us to figure out like how we worked really well together and our skill set. Totally. And so in nights and weekends, we came home, we would build things, we would try to make money. And the very first thing we ever made money doing was a website called mailfromsantaclaus.com. Yes. <laughs> I love that brand. That's yeah. awesome. Mail from Santa Claus. Yes, it was 2005. Again, give, give us the pitch. Yeah. <laughs> So if you had a child or grandchild who believed in Santa Claus, because Santa Claus is real, clearly, if there are children listening. Yes, we're not going to be the ones to break oh, that news no, here. No, no. What news? Yes, exactly. Santa Claus is real. Santa. Mm -hmm. He's very busy. The Santa. The Santa is busy. And so there was a gentleman in Santa Claus, Indiana, that would help write his letters for him. That's awesome. And so you put in your child's age, their name, maybe a few things they wanted for Christmas, and then they would get a letter from Santa Claus in the mail. No way. Yes, we were just an affiliate, so we got $5 for every letter that we sourced on behalf of the gentleman doing the letters. So it was amazing. There was no inventory to do. We just got to build the site and focus on marketing. 
And at the end of the first season, we made $2,000. And we thought that was the best thing that had ever happened. Yeah. Right? We were like, hey, this pays That's for some our, good extra Christmas money. Right. This yeah. pays for our Christmas presents. Maybe we take a little vacation. Like, yeah. this is really cool. And then it was all over. And <laughs> life felt a little empty. Yeah. And we were like, let's see what else we can do. Let's do it again. A lot of again. seasonality to that product. A lot of seasonality. <laughs> and could we continue working on it? Of course. Sure. But in the meantime, we decided to try something else. Yeah. And after what felt like a year of searching, but really was about six weeks, we bought sunglasswarehouse.com from a gentleman in Florida who had just had a baby. Was, his wife was ready for him to get rid of it. How did you find that deal? Ugh. Long story short is we became a little bit obsessed with sunglasses because we lost out on a deal. Mm. Yeah, I know. I'll uh, do it. So we got outbid at the last minute. We had bid $40,000, which was like all of our- That's a lot of letters from Santa. Yeah. It was like double our savings account. Yeah. And it ended up being the very best thing possible um, because then we went and looked for a different sunglasses site selling something similar. We we love the margins. We loved the opportunity because it's a huge market. Mm. There's lots of room for people, especially in 2005, 2006. Most people have eyes. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And we, most of us wear sunglasses. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And most of us have multiple pairs. That's true. Yeah. And so we found a site for sale in Florida. How? It's 2005. Like acquired.com, right? Or microacquire. That wasn't a thing, was it? There were some sites. Maybe Flippa. uh, We bought a lot of things from BizBuySell. I remember BizBuySell. I think it still exists. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Um, But in this case, it was actually just looking up who owned the site. There was a whole list. We went through like all the ones that existed and started emailing people and said, would you be interested in selling? What did you learn in that process of just looking at a bunch of different businesses and considering whether or not, hey, should we bid on this one? Should we buy? What were some of the things you as as a uh, self-professed, not full blood entrepreneur, what were the things that you're gleaning from that experience? First of all, we noticed that there was a lot of, I think, differences in people's level of tech ability in 2006 like it was a lot harder to build a site but you guys had experience doing that we didn't with the santa yeah the santa letter (laughs) how did you guys learn how to build sites randy was a software engineer so that was helpful that is helpful yes very helpful but otherwise the shopify's of the world didn't exist yet and Mm -hmm. so you were building from scratch or using wordpress or joomla or something like that yeah and so it took a little bit of extra finesse to make things look nice Mm-hmm. And so one thing we noticed is there was a wide variety of how websites looked and how they functioned. There was a wide variety of domains. And in 2006, it was thought that you needed a keyword in a domain to be relevant. And that was something that we were looking at as well. But at the end of the day, it was a lot of who's willing to sell. And do we like this site well enough that we think we can rehab it and make it worthwhile? Mm. And that's how we ended up with Sunglass Warehouse. How did you learn about valuing? Like you said, you bid $40,000. Like, how did you learn about how to value a website in 2005, 2006? Surprisingly enough, there was already a lot of information online. And so pretty much from that point until now, like we taught ourselves everything that we needed to know by just like talking to other people and reading about like stories and, and advice. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So takes so you're there, you guys get outbid at the last second mm-hmm. and it leads you down to what you say sunglasswarehouse.com. Yep. All right. So 
how did you guys land on that one and and what was the kind of the the genesis of what became eventually one click yeah so i don't remember exactly how many people were willing to sell but i do remember we liked that domain the best and it was a really good price so we bought that for ten thousand dollars which was half of our savings account yeah and then we still had ten thousand left to spend on marketing and inventory so you're just buying the domain or there was already a business functioning there there was already a business functioning but we didn't want it yeah yeah (laughs) it was like more like Buying it for parts. Yep, yep. Yep. That's right. So business was this guy in Florida had sunglasses, had inventory and was shipping them out of his house. Yep. Interesting. What did you guys know about sourcing like physical products? Nothing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we learned everything online. So we first found a wholesaler that was selling online and we bought everything from this one wholesaler. If we fast forward six months, we went to a trade show in Las Vegas where we met a ton of other wholesalers and importers. And we realized like, one, there's a lot more opportunity to save money, get better margins, get better product, both from a quality standpoint and a fashion standpoint. Mm. But at first we just started with one wholesaler. Really? Yeah. We called him. He helped us pick a nice variety to start and we just launched. Nice. So talk to me about the launch. What what was that like? Was there a big marketing push or was it not a lot of fanfare. And you press go and all of a sudden you made a million dollars year one, we, right? We did not, yeah. no. If I remember correctly, we made a, maybe 40000 in revenue that first year, which I think from zero to 40 is not yeah. terrible, right? But again, we were teaching ourselves everything along the way. Yeah. And so I was trying to figure out like inventory management and customer service and how do you ship an order? And Brandy was working on, hey, let's make the website prettier. And where do we get this logo made? And where do we get the pictures? And um, like, how do I market this? And so he was teaching himself everything on one side and I took the other and we just went for it. So what was the why that was driving you to? It was mostly about, honestly, in the beginning, let's see if we can do it. Yeah. Yeah. I think for Randy, he was driven by wanting to be his own boss and own his own destiny. Mm-hmm. I really like to figure things out. I like challenges. I like small challenges that you can see progress every day. And I think I got caught up into that. Mm-hmm. And then eventually, like my why became a little bit different. But we really wanted to just see if we could figure it out. As a now professor of entrepreneurship, but also a background in psychology, what do you think are the really important psychological factors that an entrepreneur needs to consider in those early days of starting up? Yeah, nothing is gonna go like you think it's going to. And so having some level, uh, really a high level of resilience is really important. Mm. Can you cultivate that? Oh, that's a great question. I think Randy and I both naturally had some resilience just based on our childhood and like who we were as people. And so when things didn't go as planned, it just fueled us to try harder or try different. but I have seen entrepreneurs, I think, that don't have that resilience. And, and that, I do think it might be a hard thing to learn. But mm. TBD on whether you can cultivate it. Sure. That might be a question yeah. for somebody else. Yeah. Okay. I also think that you have to be driven by knowledge. And you have to also understand, like, when it's outside of your realm and you need to ask for help or ask for guidance from people. Those are all really important factors, whether you're building, like, an e-commerce business out of your house or, like... <laughs> A high growth startup. Yeah. Yeah. And it seems like from your early, early exposure and just, you were very curious, right? You were learning about all of these things. Like you're in psychology for a high school or or a school corporation. And on the side, you're learning about operations and websites and (laughs) mail from (laughs) Santa.com. How important do you think curiosity is for an entrepreneur? I personally think it's really important. And we talk a lot about that actually in my classes at Purdue, just being naturally curious about how things work. It's 
I think there's one thing to sit and let somebody tell you how something is done, but it's another to just seek out that knowledge. And so we are, Randy and I are both very curious people, and I still find myself very curious. When I stumble on something, I'm like, wait, how does that work? Or how did that happen? Or what's going on? And I find myself in deep dives all the time. Oh, I feel like, it, especially if you're like naturally curious, especially as an angel investor, when you like ask a really probing, like intellectual question to an entrepreneur, and they're like, oh my gosh, this person cares about my idea and they want to learn about how it works. Yeehaw, let's go. One of the things that I'm thinking about right now is just you're a new mom, newish mom. Mm -hmm. First couple, first year, first couple years. First year, he's nine months next week. Oh my gosh, yeah. that's amazing! Coming up on the first year, um, I'm sure there will be some degree where he's just going to be learning curiosity by osmosis, just by being around mom, who's a naturally curious person. Something I always reflect on is like a lot of this, like resilience, grit, tenacity, does come a lot of times with entrepreneurs from early childhood struggles and challenges that they had in their childhood development. And I would imagine for an entrepreneur, there's like this, and as a parent, there's this balance of, I don't want my life, my child's life to be as hard as mine was in some ways, but at the same time, I don't want to rob them of resilience. How mm. do you think about that as the, in, as you think about how you're going to raise your oh, child? It's already a huge question. So Jeff, my current husband and I had talked about it a lot and we're even coming up with it already because I was telling Nate he was he's starting to pull up on everything and there's a nice balance between catching him when he falls and helping him learn mm -hmm. that like when you hit the ground it hurts and so you need to be more careful yes and so we're already trying to balance that I, I don't want to raise especially if he's an only child yeah. only child with a really cushy lifestyle that never has to lift a finger yeah. or do anything or solve a problem and I think especially parents these days we all run the risk of taking care of everything for our kids sure. and not allowing them to solve their own problems. And so I totally I agree, especially looking back at, at my childhood, um, at some of the, the challenges that I was faced with. I do think the tenacity and the resilience comes a lot from what we learned growing up. Yeah. It, and it sounds like in a lot of ways you're to happen, not necessarily manufacturing those moments, but I guess you're manufacturing it by not necessarily like always catching yes <laughs> when, when the fall is happening yes you're just like i, I just brace for impact yes but i try to let the falls happen on the carpet for anyone that's listening <laughs> yeah, sure. yes and not the child yeah. yeah yeah it makes sense yeah. and and then once verbal processing is there you can have the debrief okay why did we fail at this thing how are we gonna go about skateboarding the next time or basketball the next time, or whatever the the use case is that's really interesting appreciate you letting me yeah. probe and think about that the, the other thing that's really unique to me that has always stood out to me about your one click story is deciding to go into business with your life partner. Talk to me a little bit about that decision. Was that something you did eyes wide open or did it just happen organically? Honestly, it happened organically. Were you worried about it at all? No. Why? I think because we had such complementary skill sets mm. and some from the very, very beginning, uh, I trusted Randy to do his thing. He trusted me to do mine. Obviously, like we worked together on strategy and things like that. Yeah. But I never felt like he was like dancing in my portion of the business. Like neither one of us was telling each other what to do. Like we both trusted each other to do our own things. And we had very separate responsibilities. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the only way that it worked for so long. Were there things that he did to annoy you or that you did to annoy him? <laughs> I mean, there were definitely, as we like got team members and we grew the business, Sure, uh, we had to learn how to not become emotional with each other in fights because obviously like I annoyed him and he annoyed me, right? Because of course, you spend it's a co-founder. It's a co-founder. A, a, it's a co-founder and it's a partner. Yes. So you've got like the house stuff 
I would imagine would seep into the business stuff. hundred percent. Even when you don't know it. Yes. Right. And so we had to tamper down the, Oh, let's take this outside conversation. Yeah. Our team members would start looking at each other. Like not in front of the kids. Not in front of the kids. Not in front of the kids. That's, that's interesting. Do you have advice for other, let's say husband, wife, whatever partners that might be going into business together of, Hey, we might have done this the wrong way. If I could go back, I would do it this way or how just advice for them on growing a business together as partners. I think that like one of the things we did well, obviously was the responsibility split. Like I talked about, I don't necessarily think that we did a great job of having any kind of separation between life and work. Mm-hmm. And honestly, like we didn't want it. Like we loved one click. We loved growing our business. That was my life. And I felt like my life was my work. But looking back and having five years to reflect on everything that happened, I do think that our identities got so ingrained in the business that when the business was over, I was left thinking, okay, what now? Who am I without Mm -hmm. this business? Mm -hmm. I'm always an entrepreneur and I'll always be like the co-founder, but I'm not an active co-founder. And now what? Yeah. And I do think like together too, as a married couple, we let that all slip away. So I would say to make sure that you have that balance that you're looking for and that you're both on the same page about what that looks like. Yeah. Yeah. Would you have other advice for founders that may have sold their business and are now in that identity crisis on like, what does come next? What you just hang out on the beach or it's no, like there's like a spirit inside these people where they want to go out and Conquer more challenges. Like, be curious. Like, yeah. What kind of advice would you have for them? So I've talked to several founders that have sold businesses, and some people want to jump right in, and they already have their next idea. And you know what? And maybe that's what they need to do. I did find a lot of value in stopping to reflect. I just, I made, like, coffee meetings and lunches my new job, and I connected with a bunch of people that I hadn't seen in a long time. I was really curious about what the options were. Like, should I be a consultant? Should I be a coach? I made a I'm a nerd. So I made a, a spreadsheet of yes. all of my options and what sounded interesting. And that's how I ended up um, teaching at Purdue because education and at the like secondary level seemed really interesting to me. And so I was like, you know what? If not now, never. So let's go try it. Yeah. Yeah. Love it. But I, just taking a breath to pause, reflect, and mm-hmm. figure out what's next. I think that's commendable advice. You speak to the tenacity it takes to be an entrepreneur and the resilience that you guys had to show. Take us back to that first year. year one, which is significant in my opinion. Like that's amazing. But what was like, how close in that first year, two years, were you like to folding it? Ah, this just isn't it. Tell us about some of the challenges you guys faced early on. Surprisingly enough, I don't think we ever had a conversation about folding it. That's amazing. Yeah. That's tenacity. Luckily enough for us, I think that we were in a position where we could both keep our jobs. And so the business itself was profitable almost immediately. We didn't need a salary. You weren't paying yourselves. We weren't paying ourselves because we still had our jobs. Um, On the flip side of that, because we had jobs, every single minute that we were free was business related. Mm -hmm. So we both came home from work. It was immediately, let's work on everything. We would get up in the mornings and work in the business. I would go to my car at lunch and make calls. And we were in a type of business where if we weren't there to fill orders, they didn't get done. And so sometimes we were recruiting family and friends if we had like a wedding to go to or or something where we couldn't be physically there for the day. But for the most part, we didn't watch TV. We didn't watch the news. I had no idea what was going on. We didn't see our friends and family. We were just heads down going for it. In your relationship now with Jeff, Mm -hmm. you you said you're trying to be more intentional about creating that work-life separation, balance. You're still very busy. You're writing for the Indianapolis Business Journal. You're teaching entrepreneurship at Purdue. You're angel investing. You're raising a child. How do you 
how are you now with Jeff creating space for that relationship? What things do you both do intentionally? Because I would imagine our listeners, a lot of them have primary relationships. A lot of them have high demanding jobs. And it would be curious, I'd be curious to know what you're learning now in your relationship with Jeff and just cultivating more of that relationship outside of work. Yeah. So we are both in a position where we're able to work at jobs that we love, which is really helpful. And so we are not in the corporate race and mm-hmm. the, the promotional ladder. He works for Agronovus, which is a nonprofit here in Indianapolis, and he loves what he does. But Shout out to Mitch, who's been on the podcast. Uh, Mitch Frazier is great. Hi, Mitch. <laughs> and he loves his job, but it is a job that primarily gets to be done during the day. Yeah. And my job is a job that I have to grade, but primarily is done during the day and also during the school year. And so we have both allowed ourselves to prioritize like our hobbies our, mm. and our physical well-being. We're both really good at exercising and keeping that up and then also having just time for ourselves which helps us have a better relationship with each other as well. Yeah. Time for self is a huge one. I, I'll share from my own experience of having a partner in Allie because yeah. she worked at one click yeah. right out of school. And just in the times where we were both doing the entrepreneurial thing in the early days, especially when she was freelance writing, it was very easy to just be around. And I was running a lifestyle business too. So didn't have a, a big team, didn't, didn't really have a schedule, didn't have to be anywhere at any certain time. And we found ourselves just spending all of our time together. And I can totally relate to, even though we weren't working on a business together, we were working on a business together in the sense that we were always just reflecting back what we were hearing, giving a different perspective on each other's businesses and just learning to create those extracurriculars. The, for me, it's music for Allie, it's writing novel, writing a novel instead of writing copy for MasterCard or whoever and writing things just for fun and having those separate things I can really relate to what you're saying on just like having that time for yourself Yeah, is almost as important as having the time together. It is. Yes. And we both have personal goals around our hobbies and we love to cycle together, but Jeff is very, he's much more serious about cycling and he has like personal goals that he sets every year. And so it's really important for him to go out and be able to work on those goals by himself. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. And then just to have that time as well. This totally. is the relationship deep dive. <laughs> one day I'm going to come back and listen to Once this. Once you have a relationship. Like one day. One day. It's because you invited somebody with a psychology background. <laughs> I'm here for this. This is really valuable. Now this is just a nice marketing I- infomercial for Nate's on the market, everybody. <laughs> oh, yes. Let's use the podcast to get me a date. This is really the master plan. Yeah, I, that's why I started this whole thing. I know. Two I years know. ago when I joined the team at Powder Keg. Yes. <laughs> Let's just psychologically dissect Nate now. No, I'm I'm good. (laughs) I'm chill with that. Are you ready to transform your brand with award-winning video content that captures your vision and connects with your audience? Check out Alchemy, the experts at building your brand using video. From story-driven social media snippets that leave a lasting impression to compelling full-length documentaries, they have got the expertise to take your brand to the next level. Alchemy is actually our video partner here on Get In, and they do amazing work. All the videos across social, uh, across YouTube, all that is done by Alchemy, and, and they're an amazing partner to work with. Reach out to me, Nate, at Powder Keg, or check out alchemyfilmco.com to get connected with Alden and his team. They will take care of all of your video needs. Talk to me about some of those pivotal moments at OneClick, because it really does seem like from a very early stage, you're always getting some positive momentum. You're getting those dopamine hits along the way from a psychological perspective that are keeping you going. Inevitably, in any founder journey, you're going to run into some 
roadblocks, some dark moments, changes in algorithms. Oh, <laughs> if you're an SEO yes. traffic website, what were some of those bigger ones that you remember at one click that almost stopped you in your tracks? Yeah. So to set the stage for those of you that may not be one click junkies, like <laughs> originally our business model was to purchase or start small websites and then flip them. So the ones that we purchased, we would flip them, put a new coat of paint on it, figure out the new marketing strategy, maybe change the customer. And then we would either keep that for cash once it was profitable, or we would sell it and use the money to invest in something that we thought had more opportunity. Genius. And so at one point, I think we uh, owned over 30 different web properties. Oh my gosh, I didn't realize it was that many. Yeah, it's a, it's a lot. Wow. Um, I just remember like affordable scarves. <laughs> Sunglass Warehouse, of course, Felix and Iris. Of course, Felix and Iris. You're like the Chip and Joanna Gaines of totally. website properties. That's totally. Ex that's exactly right. That's awesome. Yeah. Maybe not that cool, but <laughs> that was that's the idea. Yeah. And that was working really well for a while. And then around 2012, these bigger brands started figuring out digital marketing. Yeah. So like the department stores and the Best Buys of the world. And before that, we really didn't have a whole lot yeah. of competition, right? And so it was pretty easy. The golden years. Yeah, it was the golden years. It was a lot easier to just focus on the X's and O's of building a website and selling to customers. Yeah. Um, How were you driving traffic in the early days? It depends on the year and the business, yeah. but primarily the main channel. So SEO, paid marketing, email marketing. There wasn't a lot of social media at that time. I was going to say, yeah. like, like, you couldn't just like turn on $100,000 in Facebook ads at that point, and it's like all of a sudden you have a million visitors. That's correct. No. Interesting. Yeah. That's, that's interesting. It's funny that you mentioned algorithm updates. You probably might remember this. But in 2012, we got hit by one. Yeah. Penguin Panda, I don't remember. Panda, yeah. One, one, of those. one of the two. Yes. And at that point in time, we were getting over 50% of our traffic from organic search. We got up one day, and mm. all 11 of our websites were gone from Google. Gone. Gone. Not Could, even like a dip. Nope. Couldn't just, find them. They were just gone. Wow. What? Yeah. And. To make matters worse, it happened three days before we moved into our brand new building. Oh, oh my goodness. Yeah. What, what was like, that like? Yeah. How are you feeling? It, exactly like to the face, looks yeah. on your faces. <laughs> your websites are gone. Gone. Yeah. They're just gone. You've lost half your traffic overnight. Half our, literally. Yes, half our traffic. And I think it was half of our revenue was just gone. I'm sure you just handled, handled that totally mindfully, took it in stride, didn't panic at all. <laughs> Take us back. What do you do? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so like the I don't remember necessarily. I remember panicking, of course. Of course. Right. And then at the end of the day, it took us about nine months to rectify the issue. In the meantime, there was like some days were panic, some days weren't. It was all hands on deck. We had people from the warehouse that were trying to let's cut to the chase, we were removing links. Because we've been working on these businesses since two thousand six and the rules of Google had change had altered what was accepted or looked over suddenly wasn't okay anymore and so we had to go back and try to figure out like, what were we doing in 2006 7 8 9 and undo it all yeah. oh my undo that and, yes is tough. and google wasn't super helpful it's like you can call somebody and yeah. get customer service and they weren't super helpful in helping us figure out what the problem was and so we were guessing you would guess and then resubmit guess and then resubmit guess and, and so it took about nine months to get all of our sites back but that event right there helped us pivot and transition to the eyewear company that ended up selling to Foster Grant because we understood that this idea of building and rehabbing businesses and owning 11 or 20 properties wasn't 
really working anymore. We had to build brands and focus on customer service and figure out our value proposition and exactly how I would tell somebody to build a business today. That's what we finally did. Yeah. But that's not how we started. What, what is your advice for entrepreneurs and executives for navigating choppy waters? I think that there are days, and there were lots of days in this crisis and other crises that we had where I woke up and thought, what are we doing? I don't want to do this anymore. But before you make any crazy decisions, you need to take a breath, take a walk, go have coffee with somebody that's not related to your business, go to sleep. And then the next day, I promise, it's probably going to feel a little bit different. And you're going to be recharged and ready to go again. Mm -hmm. And then you say, okay, right. But we have 40 people or 50 people or whatever it was that work for us. And they're relying on us to feed their families. So I got to figure this out, right? Mm -hmm. But it's okay to take a breath and panic a little bit and then come back and figure it out. Yeah, get just give yourself the space. Yeah. Yeah, that's Are, great advice. Would you say that you're good under pressure? Like did you enjoy having the pressure of okay, I you're it's not necessarily you're doing it for you, but it's like when you get to 50 employees, it's like we got to figure this out. So would you say being good under pressure is like a, an essential skill for entrepreneurs? think it's very helpful. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I really enjoy my life now where there's not a lot of pressure, but to be honest, I probably functioned the best at one click when it was like chaotic and there was a lot of things happening at once and I needed to be like rapid fire. Mm -hmm. And it was interesting, right? So with you guys, what, what, how many employees did you guys top out at? 85. At 85. Mm -hmm. What was the mix between like digital marketers and software engineers versus fulfillment hourly employees? Yeah. So our fulfillment team was our largest team when we sold. And I think we were probably like 60% operations, which would be fulfillment, customer service and merchandising. Um, they were under my watch as well. Mm -hmm. And then probably 40% would be like marketing and software engineers and finance. Mm -hmm. So what did you learn about managing more of the hourly, maybe it could be considered blue collar workers versus more like white collar workers? It was challenging from a culture perspective at times because it's really hard to give people a four day work week when they're hourly. And so like things like summer Fridays, which are really popular in the tech world or were at some time, yeah. they were a little bit more difficult because we still had to get our orders filled. Sure. And when you have holidays and you have holiday sales, like Memorial Day, that's one of the biggest like sales in the United States is Memorial Day and Labor Day. It's very hard to get people like a four day weekend because we had a lot of orders to fill. Yeah. Right. And so we had to manage that with different types of expectations and different types of people. And it wasn't always easy. How did you get them on the same page where it's like they maybe like more of the warehouse staff understands, respects, works well with, builds culture with the front office staff? Mm, how any, much, any good? How uh, much time advice? do you have? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, long story short, we started um, a program called Open Book Finance in 2011, um, and that was pivotal in getting everybody on the same page. Tell us what that means. So Open Book Finance is essentially when you open your books up to the entire team and they can take responsibility for the company um, on their own shoulders. And so we shared all finances with the company uh, from gross revenue all the way down to cash. Um, the only thing we didn't share at the time was uh, individual salaries, but you could see individual departments' budgets. Mm -hmm. And we would share every single month where we were over or under, how we were doing, how we were doing toward our metrics. And then every single team in the company had their own metrics that kind of they didn't, they led up to the company's goals as well. And then each person's goals and objectives would align with the department's objectives, which aligned with the company's goals and objectives. And so we would sit around in department meetings and fulfillment, for example, and we would talk about the metrics that they were working on, if they were hitting goal and how that related to the company's mission and our company goals for the year. 
And so that's how we created alignment and how they felt just as important as the marketing team or the software engineering team or the finance team, because it would literally, all of it was very important. Every single person's job was important to the health of the company, and we showed them how it was important. There's a really great resource uh, on this. Another Indian entrepreneur, Scott Hill from Perk, recommended to me 15 years ago. I think it's called Open Book Management. Yeah. Jack Stack, is that, does that it sound is, right? It is, it's the same it's, thing. It's been 10 years since I read it. But yeah, I just mentioned that for the listeners. If you wanna have kind of a playbook, that's an awesome read. Yeah, that's exactly how we started, Jack Stack. Yeah, that's yep. so cool. So cool that you were able to do that with both kind of like the blue collar, white collar, front office, back office, and still implement that sort of cohesiveness. Yes. Across the entire team. Yes. The other thing, real quick, that we learned is that we couldn't necessarily just take somebody who was comfortable working at Amazon and plug them into our warehouse because Mm -hmm. what we needed, we needed people that wanted to offer their input and suggestions and not just get their list of things to do and go home. Mm -hmm. And because it was, we were still functioning as a team that we were trying to get better every single day. So somebody that was used to a traditional warehouse setting didn't necessarily feel comfortable in our environment because we were like, what do you think? What do you think? Should we try this? Let's experiment. And so we did a little bit better with like moms that were returning to the workforce or retirees that wanted a part-time job. Mm. Yeah. Or people that were not traditional, just like warehouse workers. That makes a ton of sense. Yeah. Yeah. In that, in the environment, fast paced environment of one click, I meant, I heard you mention wanting to spreadsheet things. You're probably making a lot of decisions based on data. And when you're doing those kinds of things, there's really no end to how much analysis you could possibly do. On the other end of the spectrum, you could make all of your decisions just based off of gut instinct. How do you find that balance between making decisions quickly and based on instinct versus data and analysis and making the best possible decision because you've researched it a hundred different ways and this is probably the best choice? If you want to pick one or the other, I would probably lean towards the data portion. We definitely started out gut instinct because we didn't know any better. Sure. Like when it was just the two of us in our house. Uh, And speed is everything when you're... It's important, right? When you're small. And we were testing and there wasn't a lot of risk because it was just us. Yeah. And then when you have a team of people, we eventually had business intelligence intelligence analyst, Tim Klausmeyer, was amazing. He was the most important person at OneClick. He was our BI guy. And we relied on him very heavily to do analysis and tell us what the numbers were telling us. And at some point in time, we probably relied a little bit too much on the numbers too. How did you know when that happened? I think you have to step back and do use some common sense. And that helps when you have a team, a leadership team that has a different skill set. So I think that at the end of the day, my psychology background may have helped in those situations. Mm-hmm. Sure. Both art and science. Yeah. 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 When you come at it like a, from a finance perspective and then you have a people perspective and you maybe have a common sense perspective, you just have to take a step back and look at it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it does sound like it's, uh, hey, look at the data, get as many inputs as possible. But at the end of the day, you have to trust yourself as an entrepreneur in what you're seeing in all the different aspects of the business. Yeah. And then get the team on board with that decision. Yes. Do you think that e-commerce brands are even more specific, so heavily data-driven where it's like cost of margin, traffic, conversion, like you just look at it and it's make sure your funnel lines up and that's what you look at and what you base decisions off of versus like what you seems to have learned was it's building brand. And it's like, how do you like, you sell a brand, not just website properties. Yeah, I think that's one of the reasons it was really hard for us to transition to brand building at first is because we were so used to being able to track every single thing that happened. Yeah. 
And then when you're brand building and you want people to come direct to your site, that's amazing. But we don't know how they ended up direct to our site. Did a friend tell them? Did they see a commercial somewhere? And so like you're, then you're left wondering and, and guessing. And so it was a little bit of a harder transition. Talk to me about investing and how that skill set has applied in angel investing. Because similarly, it, it does seem like the best investors that I've met are the ones that take their people skills and understanding how to read an entrepreneur, especially at the seed and pre-seed stage, like earliest stages of a startup, and then balancing that with data. Can you give us a little insight into your process of vetting deals? Yeah, so you're gonna have to check back with me in five to seven years <laughs> sure, sure. to see if I'm any good at this because we haven't had any exits yet. But I'm definitely a founder first investor. Yeah. And it's a lot about the resilience and the tenacity that we were talking about early on. Like I need to see that mm -hmm. in my uh, founders before I'm going to invest. But I also really like to see like a financial plan. And we all laugh about how financial plans never really come to fruition. Right. But it's about seeing how that founder thinks and yeah. seeing what's important and what's important is going to make the spreadsheet. Yep. Does it make sense? Is it outlandish? All of those things are really important, even if we never come close to hitting those numbers. So it is an, a nice balance of figuring out, do I like this founder? Do I want to work with them? Do I think they have the guts to do it and the brains to do it also? And then also, can I see their action plan on paper? Are you open about who you've invested in? Yes. Or any of the founders? Could you, can you brag on a few of your founders? Just like a quick, who's doing cool things that we need to keep on our radar? I think you guys know Darian and Devin from Qualify. Sure. Like Had them on the podcast. Of course, yes. right? They're amazing. Yeah. I also really love Connor and Krista Hitchcock from Homefield because obviously like they're e-commerce as well. Yes. And Connor was a previous employee, right? Connor was, yes. Yes. Yeah. I remember getting coffee with Connor three or four years ago when he was just getting started and hearing about everything that Homefield was doing. Matt, are you familiar with Homefield? No. Oh, and you want to give the you want to give Connor's pitch for Matt? Yeah, I'm probably not going to do him justice, but <laughs> he's collegiate apparel. Okay. Um, and so Connor and Krista started um, targeting like D3 schools that didn't get a lot of representation mm -hmm. with the big brands. Cough, moan on bell game. <laughs> cough, cough. Yes. Um, and they have some like they have some like really fun shirts and fun designs, and they're uh, a little bit retro inspired at times. Mm -hmm. And what they've done is created like a rabid fan base. Like they have a community of cool. people. So much so that when they were behind in fulfillment a few years ago because they had so many orders, mm -hmm. not because they didn't plan well, their community of fans, i.e. customers, started sending them food to the office to give them strength and energy to get their orders fulfilled. That's amazing. Who does that? It That's is, amazing. And they do really cool drops. and really So it's all licensed college apparel based on retro. I'm like, I'm a fan. Yeah, I'm a rabbit fan. Yeah. Did they, you send food? I'm not that big of a fan. So <laughs> all I'm, right. Sorry, so you're not really a I'm true not that big of a fan. fan. <laughs> but they drop IU retro, candy stripe, whatever. And it's a lot of it's limited. Cool. So it's like you have to be very timely with it. And they're they're growing something really cool. And big influencers wear their stuff. Yeah. Like, uh, a bunch of just sports enthusiasts have home field apparel. Love that. It's, it's really cool. Yeah. And it's right here, very near your neck of the woods. Like, isn't their office in Broderpool or Sober yeah. somewhere? It's in Speedway now. Oh, they moved to Speedway. Mm -hmm. All yeah. right, well, it was. In you you don't get much more Indiana than Speedway, That's Indiana. True. That That's true. awesome. I love it. You teach entrepreneurship now too. And of course, as an investor, a lot of times you have an opportunity to give feedback or coach in some situations. What is some of your most common advice to entrepreneurs? At, the, at Purdue or just in general? I would say to plug into your community. Mm -hmm. We, Reena and I started building one click 
behind closed doors. Mm -hmm. And I think that was okay in the sense that we had a lot to learn and teach ourselves before we probably announced it to the world. Um, But once we started plugging into the community, like the community, especially here in Indianapolis, is so strong and so helpful. And so if you are an entrepreneur and you're building something, then I make a suggestion every time to just reach out because you'd be surprised how many people will take a coffee with you. Well, you guys were like e-commerce, right? Mm-hmm. And I don't think Indiana or Indianapolis specifically is known as an e-commerce city. So how were you crossing industries or verticals to make valuable connections there? Yeah, so a lot of the problems of building a company um, from a team's perspective, com- uh, culture perspective, even sometimes a marketing perspective, it be the same channels, but you'd be surprised how much of it is similar mm-hmm. and how much you can learn. You mentioned Scott Hill earlier. Scott and Andy were huge and they were really pivotal in our beginnings. They're some of the first people that we met and they were so helpful, even though they have nothing to do with e-commerce and it's not even similar at all. Right. We learned so much from them. Yeah. 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 They're a great duo here in town. Tell me a little bit more about teaching. Was that a hard transition to make? It was an interesting transition. I remember asking my boss, I was like, I don't even know, is my experience relevant? And she was like, yes. <laughs> like, I was like, oh, okay. Ooh, yeah. Wait, dive in. Boss, how different was that? <laughs> to like now you, you're a very accomplished entrepreneur and now all of a sudden you have a boss again. Yeah, I would say if you don't want um, to feel like you have a boss, go work in higher ed because it's very, they like trust you to do your thing and it's very hands-off, which yeah, I appreciate. That's yeah. nice. Yeah. And so at Purdue, at least they hand you like the general curriculum and then you get to come up with all the examples and teach it the way that you want to teach it, mm-hmm. which I think is super cool. So I get to use my experience, the experience of some of my investments. Um, we use current events, um, but it's been really interesting. I definitely think that it's hard to teach entrepreneurship until you actually go out and do it. My students have none of the risk that a real entrepreneur has, right? But I also think that if somebody had walked me through the steps over a semester, I we may have hit the ground running a little faster. Yeah. 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 I was one of my majors was entrepreneurship and corporate innovation. And I think there were a lot of things that I learned and took for granted. But had to work with a number of people who didn't have that background to realize, oh, I guess I was absorbing a lot, even though I was like in the classroom starting a business at the same time, I'm half working on the business, half paying attention to it, to what was happening in class. So it, it is one of those things where it's like, maybe you're still going to make the mistakes, but like maybe you make them faster or not as badly. Yes. Because you know a little bit. Oh, wait, we talked about that. Exactly. How many students would you say do you have that are in your classes that are actually working on a side hustle, some type of business? Yeah. So I have a, I usually have about 120 students a semester. And I would say I probably have at least 10 every semester that are working on something that tell me about it. Yeah. Okay. There, There could be others. Sure. And that's from everything from starting a physical product business to being an influencer to yeah like starting trying to do like a SaaS company we have all kinds do you do you think that it's important so maybe you have students so you say 10 out of 120 there might be students that don't talk about it do you think it's important to talk about all the ideas you have as like someone who's interested in entrepreneurship I'm working on this or should you do what you guys did and build until you have something you're proud of ready to show the world I don't think there's a risk in talking about it. And I know a lot of my students are worried that someone's going to steal their idea. (laughs) And I keep telling them, like, there's not really new ideas, guys. Like, it's all about the execution. And, like, when do you get to market? Is it the right time to get to market? How fast do you get to market? Who are your competition? Like, you really don't need to worry about someone stealing your idea. Maybe on a rare occasion, but... I had a very humbling moment when I was down at IU. 
And I went into office hours with my venture capital professor, Jerry Hayes, who you might know. And I went to office hours because someone had made an offer to purchase the business I had started. And I had this kind of like crossroads of, do I go to the Or Fellowship and sell my business or do I just keep working on my business and do entrepreneurship? And I started the meeting by sliding over my NDA for him to sign. <laughs> it's like the classic, I think every first time entrepreneur has to make this mistake and it's just like running into a wall and it's very embarrassing and humiliating. And I'm so glad I did it with him because he was not enough to not just ghost, A, ghost me, which is probably what would have happened if I had done that over email to literally anyone in business or just tell me to F off. He instead said, I understand that probably one of your other professors said that this is a really important thing for you to do in entrepreneurship. And I'm not going to say it's not important, but I am going to tell you in the real world of entrepreneurship, people don't sign NDAs just to hear about your ideas, especially not in free office hours. <laughs> in free scenarios. Yeah. Yes. And he explained why it is a risk for an investor, for an advisor, for anybody to sign an NDA because chances are someone else is working on that exact same idea as you or has a similar type of business problem. And just the liability that it creates for the investor, for the advisor is so high. And just having him lay that out for me at the very beginning. So I didn't have to go out into the business world and do that for a year until someone told me like why they were ghosting me was such a helpful lesson learned. And it's really interesting that you call out, I'm so afraid someone's going to steal my idea. Yeah. I just envisioned Matt just like slowly sliding his <laughs> yeah. back. Like, exactly. Ooh, who put that there? I was totally in one of those like swivel office chairs. And I'm of course, like probably wearing like pleated khakis and a tucked in like button down <laughs> shirt trying to look professional and be businessy. It was a great moment. I, I think that leads me to a question I'm curious about. How much of it is execution and how much of it is idea mm. and right place? Like maybe a little bit of right place, right place, right time, but execution versus idea. So I am biased towards execution. You will, you could fill the seat 20 more times and you probably have a split. And I know some other angel investors that are like idea first. And if it's not the coolest idea, they're not interested. I don't necessarily, I think it's more execution than idea. Execution and timing. Mm -hmm. Timing. That's a big one. Timing yeah. and market is everything. Yeah. I, that's one of the things I, I feel like I've seen through the powder keg community and previously Verge is like going back to predicting outcomes. It's if I go back and I just look at the data of who the founder is, I could predict it pretty accurately. But when it comes down to what the idea is, yeah. obviously the ones that pick the right idea in the market that's growing and has just huge tailwinds, those obviously have exceptional outcomes, but it's also hard to predict. You, you can get a little bit of data, but you just never know when the world is going to shut down and all of a sudden remote work is going to really take off. There are just a lot of things mm -hmm. out of the control. So like having the founder that can navigate those things and keep finding the blue waters rather than the red waters totally agree. is, it seems like it's the jam. So in your personal investment thesis, if you had to rank founder versus idea, what, what do you choose? I choose founder. Yes. I love yeah. that. Yeah. It's people person. It's I am a people, people person. person. Yeah. yeah. I love that. And maybe because we didn't have a good idea. Mm. Let's be honest, right? We were just I don't selling. know. Santa letters are pretty <laughs> <Come> great. On. <laughs> Come on. We need right. to resurrect that business. Is that, wait, who owns that domain? 
I have no idea. What, what was it? Mail from Santa? <laughs> Mail from SantaClaus.com. We're going to do We'll That's link what, it up in the show. Yes. Yeah, someone's going to get a couple extra letters. Definitely. Um, I think it's about that time. I, Angie, it is about the time for my favorite part of oh, the podcast. Okay. And that is called the lightning round. Okay. The lightning round. Quick answers off the top of your head. I'm going to have four questions today. I have an, an interesting one. I'm going to slide a new one in to start. Okay. So you are the first person to answer this one. No wrong answers. Okay. No. Whatever comes to your no mind first. No wrong answers. Okay. You ready for it? This is the new one. You're really it, building up the anticipation. Yes. Okay. If you had to start a business tomorrow, what would you do? I would own a bookstore. Money. Why? I love books. I love reading. I also love the idea of starting something that you don't feel the pressure to grow exponentially every single day. I think that'd be Allie's answer too. That's hilarious. Yeah. A bookstore. The wine bar, coffee shop, bookstore. Classic. <laughs> That's amazing. That's a catchphrase in our, our relationship. Yes. yes. I love that. That's a great answer. A yeah. bookstore. Yeah. Okay. Totally. May, maybe not in, I love Indianapolis, but we already have some good bookstores. I was just at one on my way over yeah. here. Yeah. What bookstore? A Tomorrow Bookstore. Yeah. Jake and Julia. Yeah. Jake yeah. Butler. Shout out. Yeah. I don't read any books. Oh. No, I do read books, but I buy them on Amazon or listen to them audibly. You got to support local, man. <laughs> That's fair. Honestly, I should. You're your co-host of the Get In podcast. All right, we're going to link up a a bookstore in the show notes, and I'm going to go buy a book from a real store. Okay. All right. I will do that. Tomorrow bookstore. Tomorrow bookstore. Mm -hmm. Where's it at? Mass Ave. All right. I'm in. I will go to tomorrow. Okay. Yeah. Do it. You need the receipts to prove it. I will have them on there. (laughs) We will have a picture with the receipts. Okay. Here we go. Outside of the amazing entrepreneurial ecosystem, what is Indiana known for? Racing. Racing. That's a great answer. May in Indianapolis, you can't beat it. What is one hidden gem in Indiana? A hidden gem. I'm not very good at lighting candles. I don't know how hidden it is, but I feel like the Patichu Foundation and the Patichu restaurants are like really gem worthy. I, I couldn't agree more. Okay. We would love to get Martha Hoover on the podcast. Yeah, help subtle plug. If anybody knows, make an intro there. <laughs> I thought you were going to pull from your Southern Indiana roots I know, for the I, hidden gem. I did think about it really quick and nothing <laughs> came to mind. <laughs> Fair. Okay. Who is someone that we need to keep on our radar? Someone doing big things. Can I go back and say Connor Hitchcock again? Yes. Yeah. Okay. We can double click that one. Okay. Let's double click it. Connor yes. and, and Krista Hitchcock. If you haven't checked out Homefield Apparel, this is just like a, a just a promotion podcast because they're doing great stuff. Love you got to check out their gear. They have some IU gear, man. I think we should probably get them on the podcast. I, I will. We will get Connor on the podcast. Absolutely. It'll be interesting. It'll be a good one. Yeah. yeah. He can tell you the X's and O's of marketing. We should probably have him be part of our We Wear Your Shirt yes, contest. This, this brings us back. Okay. So for all the listeners out there, if you want your startup or organization represented on the get in podcast send three larges to 16 tech addressed to powder keg nate and we will wear your startup tee and give you a 60 second ad slot where we will just talk about your startup so uh, today we're talking about powder keg and powder keg is great and we're hosting the get in podcast but get your startup t-shirts sent to 16 tech and we will brag about your company Nate needs a new wardrobe. I do, so I can land secure one of states. Nate needs a new wardrobe. Yes, yes, exactly. Yep, we will wear your shirt. We'll shout it out. And I think we need to tee up tomorrow bookstore on the next show. Boom. Let's do it. I Angie, it. this was awesome. Thank you so much for being here and sharing some of your story. I'm sure we'll have you back again and hear how some of those investments are playing out. Thank yeah. you, guys. It was really fun. Yeah, yeah, we had a blast too. Thanks. Thanks, Angie. 
This has been Get In, a Powder Cake production in partnership with Elevate Ventures. And we want to hear from you. If you have suggestions for our guest or segment, reach out to Matt or Nate on LinkedIn or on email. To discover top tier tech companies outside of Silicon Valley in hubs like Indiana, check out our newsletter at powderkeg.com slash newsletter. And to apply for membership to the Powder Keg executive community, check out powderkeg.com slash premium. We'll catch you next time and next week as we continue to help the world get in. Since you just listened to this podcast, you might be thinking about starting one for your company. Lucky for you, our partners over at Casted have you covered. Casted is the first and only podcast and video marketing platform made specifically for B2B brands. I love this about them. The platform makes it possible to publish, syndicate, amplify, and measure the value of your podcast and video content. In fact, we use it for our podcast here at Powder Keg. And if you're a startup, you should listen up because Casted for Startups is definitely for you. They are offering exclusive deep discounts of up to 82% off retail price for qualifying startups. Connect with Casted at casted.us slash powderkeg.